Deb, yeah, that was no good without you, Deb. Uh, how's it? Is it sound good? That sounds pretty good, actually. Yeah, all right. All right. Uh, let's begin with prayer. Psalm 1. We're going to start in Psalm 1 and hopefully uh, cover about half of Psalm 2 today. Uh, let's begin with prayer as we do, and let's thank God for the time we have to uh, learn His Word and to really rejoice. This um, uh, message today is is really about our King and His victory 
and sacrifice. And uh, it really brings into focus, hopefully uh, for us, the reason why we live uh, and do we live in the knowledge of him and, and, and with him. Uh, and so we'll get to all of that. So, But before we do, let's pray. Let's thank God for this uh, time. Let's thank God for his son, our king, our Lord, our victor, our husband. And with that, let's pray. Father in heaven, our great God and Lord, thank you for our time. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you and you alone have provided for us life. And in that life, uh, hope and love and joy and peace and fruit and also prosperity in the midst of a world that you have allowed to fall into um, conflict. Uh, we are grateful, Father, that by you and through you we have our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, your Son, co-equal and co-eternal with you, who is our Savior, our Lord, our Master. He became a man and he guided us, he revealed to us the way. As we're learning how to pray, we look to him and see that he prayed and how he prayed, as well as all of his servants and their prayers in the Scripture. And all those in the past, in the Old Testament, prophets and writers, and writers of Psalms, and you have revealed to us how they prayed. And you, Father, have therefore opened up the door of prayer, door of communication with you, and also the way how to gain the most from it for us. And you do not really gain anything from us, because how could you gain any more than you have? So, Father, we <clears throat> turn to your word again today and ask for your guidance and strength and insight. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So we press the button, Deb? All right. Someone else had that job a couple of weeks ago, and he didn't press the button. I won't say who it was. KB was what's his name? Uh, something, yeah. Something Keith, Keith, something. It means uh, what does it mean? Mountain chicken or something like that? His last name? Yeah, he'll be listening. Mountain chicken. So we're all saying hello to you. Uh, Psalm one. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Don't forget this word. Blessed means not just uh, times of happiness. But it refers to the joyful spiritual condition of all those who are right with God and the pleasure and satisfaction that we get from knowing that we are walking right with God. There is pleasure and satisfaction in that. And that's what the word here, blessed, means. And it's, uh, the word is used by, well, this is Hebrew, but the Greek version of this word is used by the Lord in the Sermon on the Mount uh, for the Beatitudes. That's why he opens the Sermon on the Mount with eight Beatitudes, which Beatitude is the Latin term for blessed. Blessed is the man who does what? Well, there's wicked, there's sinners, there's scoffers. We don't walk with them. We don't stand with them. We don't sit with them. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither, 
That means that uh, it, it's uh, refreshed and strong no matter what. Uh, and, and as it says here, bears fruit in its season, its leaf doesn't wither. It means, the, uh, as he says here, whatever he does, he prospers. And that means we, because uh, the blessed man, and this is what God wants for all people, right? He wants to bless all with this. And he has made every effort to do that. The only thing that's stopping anybody is their own choice, their own volition, their failure to believe in the king who's in Psalm 2. Uh, so the king is the one who's provided this blessing. And so uh, this, uh, the fact that the leaf does not wither refers to the fact that the person has refreshment and power and confidence and hope continually no matter what the season brings. Uh, and that could be adversity and prosperity. And so we looked at this yesterday. And just the reason, again, as a reminder why we're here is in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 is the introduction to the entire psalm or psalter. Of 150 psalms, the first two are not songs or prayers. They're an intro. And because the psalms contain everything about life, uh, this is an intro to life. And it makes perfect sense because we have the, the conflict or uh, duality of mankind, either the blessed man or the ungodly man, man or woman. And then we have in Psalm 2, the king, who is the one who, by the sovereign will of God, is the ruler and authority of all. And as we'll see, his law will stand for all of eternity. And, uh, and as we'll see today, that God is actually amazed that mankind tries to overthrow him. So in verse 4 now, we have a strong shift to the ungodly. Uh, he says here, not so. The, the word wicked here, does. we might think that this just means like hardened criminals or something, but this word is used for all those who reject. So it's a word for the unbeliever. All right? So it's not... You know, there's nice people out there who are ungodly because they have rejected Christ as Lord. They've rejected God. And so, though they're, we, we're grateful that they're not robbing us or trying to kill us, you know, like they're not doing wicked things, but at the same time, they, have not, they know nothing about the true life of God, which is life indeed. So, this not so, not so, meaning not so what? Well, they're not like the tree planted by the water that's sturdy, that has bears fruit, that doesn't wither, and is uh, prosperous in everything it does. So, but he says, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. And the assembly of the righteous there could, you know, we say that could re refer to like the synagogue or the church. Uh, but it's, you know, the, the reference here rolling into Psalm 2 would be the kingdom of God. And in the kingdom of God, there's an assembly of men who have been made righteous by the king. So the sinners don't stand there. And it, not, we're sinners, but this is in reference to the ungodly who are lawbreakers. And it says, for God knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And the word perish here, uh, which this would stand out to us from the very famous John 3.16, that whoever believes in him shall have eternal life and shall not perish. And uh, so those of us through Christ, we will not perish. And therefore, again, this wicked refers to the unbeliever. 
So one of the underlying currents in Psalm 1 is for the godly to avoid the, the advice or advice of the ungodly, which they always seem to be happy to give. Even though unbelievers may seem to be good people, they don't understand the faith and they have no desire to please God or obey his word. So while we could take their advice on who's a good mechanic or what's the best washing machine to buy, they can't give us advice on matters that really matter. And so we should be careful. Uh, be careful how you hear is, is the admonition in the scripture. Be careful how you see and how you hear. We should be discerning. And so um, they are like chaff. Now what is chaff? It is a worthless husks. It's a hard word to say. Husks. The worthless husks that have been separated from the grain, they're easily taken away, and they will be taken away. The ungodly will be taken away. And this is uh, what I want to emphasize here is for us, uh, first and foremost, to, to be bold with the gospel when we need to be. All right? The ungodly, their lives are in the lurch of something very serious. And that is, they will be taken away and judged at the last judgment. As we saw here in Psalm 1, they will not stand in the judgment. In other words, they'll be cast out. And also, that we don't have to get all afraid and angry and bitter at the ungodly. There are many who are prospering. They seem to be getting away with it. There's a great psalm on this. It's Psalm uh, 73. Yeah, 73, where Asaph, the writer of the psalm, is, um, he writes about how closely he came to his feet slipping because he looked at the wicked and they were, they were prospering and he wasn't. And he thought, you know, am I suffering? Did I believe in God for no reason? Is my faith in vain? Because they're easy, comfortable lives and my life is hard. And and then he, he comes to his senses and writes a beautiful psalm about it. Uh, <clears throat> so go to Matthew 13. We'll come back here to Psalm. To psalm. Uh, the ungodly will be separated and eventually taken away. And so we'll first start with the parable of the wheat and the tares. Not to do the whole parable, but to just look at the end piece of it. Matthew 13:30. So if the parable is that the, uh, the, the owner of the land has uh, planted wheat and then when he wakes up the next day, his servants find that someone else has snuck in and planted tares, which look like wheat, but they're useless. Uh, and so they ask the owner, should we tear up, should we take out the tares, should we tear them up? And he says, no, wait until the end. Uh, so that we will know which ones to separate and which ones to keep. And this is about the believer and unbeliever in God's world. And that's what, it's, what it is. It's very simple. It's about there's believers and there's unbelievers. And in Matthew 13.30, he says, Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, for us who are the wheat, you know, this is great news. But for the tares, these are the unbelievers out there. 
And the judgment upon them is nothing small. It's not slight. It's the lake of fire. And so our, our gospel message uh, should not be timid. When we have the opportunity to speak to, don't be afraid of them. Don't care what they judge you on. It doesn't matter what they think. Uh, Jesus said plainly to us, if you uh, witness of me, you know, I, I will not be ashamed of you. If you're ashamed of my name, I'll be ashamed of you. But if you, if you proclaim and confess my Father, I'll confess your name to him in heaven. And there's, there's reward in this. Uh, so separation of the ungodly, the unbeliever who are the chaff. Uh, go to math. Go back to Matthew three, and look at verse eleven. This is John the Baptist, Matthew three eleven, speaking of the Lord who is to come just right around the corner and start his ministry. Matthew 3.11, As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And that's the fork that they used to throw. Once the grain was crushed on the, on the, uh, the floor, um, then uh, it would be thrown up in the air and the wind would take away the chaff. So the winnowing fork is in his hand and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor and he will gather his wheat into the barn and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Unquenchable fire, right? It's It has its impact and it's meant to. We're not to look at it as saying, yeah, 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 you know, it's it's imagery. It's not. It's not. It's something that is of a serious nature. Uh, and, of course... This is the will of God. And I think all of us have our issues with it. I mean, if we're honest. You know, why can't God just say, oh, all right, why don't I just annihilate you? Like, there's people who teach that doctrine, that God just, you know, they don't go anywhere. He just annihilates their existence or something. And the Bible's clear that's not the case, that they're judged, the unbeliever is judged at the great white throne judgment, and that's the final judgment. Uh, we find it in Revelation 21. It's at the end. It's 20, 20 and 21. And, uh, <clears throat> and you know, it's, it's a final thing. And there's, there's, there's no coming back from it. It's not a purgatory. It's not uh, some interim place. It's a final, final judgment, also known as a second death. And Yet God is very clear that this is the way that it will be, and therefore it is the way that it must be. Uh, so the people of the world definitely protest against this, right? They protest, this isn't right, says the world. This isn't right, it isn't fair, says the world. And that is the counsel of the wicked. We must not, we can hear it, but we must not believe it, uh, whatever. Uh, they demand that the church acknowledge that non-Christians can also produce good and valuable things. Now, unbelievers can do good things. Like, I just finished my book on the Wright brothers, which I thought was fantastic. But the Wright brothers, who had a father who was a Christian, didn't seem that they became Christians. And they were actually pretty clear about that. So, the fact that they could make a flying machine, Awesome. It's not that we necessarily needed it. 
They were very, right after their flying machine, which was really put on the market around 1910, 1911, uh, just a few years, a few years later, we had World War I where they were dropping bombs from them. And the Wright brothers, had their, were, they were heartbroken that their invention was being used in such mass destruction. Um, but in any case, once they had invented how to fly, it took about a year before they were making planes that could do things the Wright brothers couldn't have imagined. They just, they, they opened the door and then really smart people took off with it. <laughs> so it took off with it, you know. So anyway, uh, <clears throat> can they do good things? Sure. But can they do valuable and important things that God would consider valuable and important? No. No unbeliever can. They can't understand the things of God. The Bible is clear. Salvation is found in only one name under heaven, by faith in Christ. And all good works can only be done by faith in God and to the glory of God. And if they're not, they're worthless to the Creator. Worthless. Go back to Psalms. Go to Psalm 127. So this is one of the things, the protest of the ungodly is, come on, Christians, we can do very important and valuable things as far as, you know, life is concerned. And the answer is, no, you cannot. Uh, they, they just don't understand. Now, at the same time, God is not locking anybody out. Christ has died for all. And so God has invited all mankind into his kingdom of whom Christ is the king. He says it in Psalm 2, if you believe in him, if you do homage to him, which is really to kiss him, and to believe in him is to accept him as your savior, then you will be with him forever. But notice the good that is done in Psalm 127 verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. Mankind, fallen, cannot do anything on his own apart from the Creator that is good. And so the ungodly will not survive the judgment, as he says. The psalmist isn't specific as to what kind of judgment he refers to in Psalm 2, uh, in Psalm 1, sorry. And you can go back there, uh, go back to Psalm 1, and we'll start Psalm 2 in a second. Uh, it says the wicked in verse 5, Psalm 1, verse 5, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. That judgment could be in their lifetime. Often God would speak to Israel about judgment coming and it would be a, a war or an attack by a neighboring nation uh, that would be their judgment. It, it could be in life. Uh, it could also be here meaning the final judgment, which is what I think the psalmist is referring to term the great white throne judgment where all will who have rejected the gospel be judged and cast away forever into the lake of fire. And, you know, if we don't tremble to some extent when we think of that, uh, unbelievers at the, uh, being judged and cast into the lake of fire, it should cause all of us to tremble just a bit. It, it may be more than a bit. This final act should be the reason enough to pray for your enemies since our topic is prayer, to pray for your enemies and for all whom you know who are lost, to pray that we really are lights to the world, which is most strikingly shown, as the Lord said, and in his prayer in John 17, and as he said directly to the disciples 
is that if you love one another, you will be my witnesses in this world. The most striking witness that we can show is our love for one another, our unity. But also we witness with our words. We must reveal the gospel. The gospel is a spoken message. But we also should pray. Pray for our enemies, as the Lord said. And pray that the gospel flies freely throughout the world. We know that God will seek all and save all who respond. And we know that he loves the world and will convict the whole world, as Jesus said in John 16. But shouldn't our understanding of what is at stake make us desire the same as he desires? Uh, it's not that someone's not going to get saved because you didn't witness to them. It's, that's not, that couldn't be true because then their salvation would depend upon you and that would be ridiculous. But that God seeks to save. He is seeking to save the lost and he's using us to do it. He's using the church here. Jesus is at the right hand of God in an amazing thing. (laughs) He trusts his church now here 2,000 years to be his witness. Crazy. Sinners who are new converts, once his enemies, he has converted us and he has been so gracious and loving and kind that we give away our own desires to witness for him, to proclaim him. And there's millions of people who do it. And hopefully we do it. We have to remember that the ungodly are not going to escape and that God is patient. This is the other aspect. We must witness and we must pray for them. But we also must understand that when we're either reading the news or reading about history or whatever, that the wicked are not going to get away with a thing. So why are they seeming to get away with it now? God is patient. As he says in Second Peter chapter 3, God wants all to come to repentance, and so he is forbearing and long-suffering. We must love them and pray for them and do good to them. But don't give your peace with God away because of the deeds of those who do not know God. Don't give your peace that you have with God, that you should have every day with Him. Don't give it away because of the deeds of those who don't know Him. Don't lose your joy with God because of anyone else's failure to reside in the joy of the fruit of the Spirit. That's That's their problem. And yes, their problem has been thrust upon you, but don't give your joy and your peace away that you have with God just because someone else doesn't get it. If you get it, hold on to it. Remember, this tree that stands by the stream, it bears fruit in its right season. And who bears that fruit? Those who delight in the Scriptures and meditate on them day and night. So, that type of person, the blessed one of Psalm 1, why should we live that way and why is it so important? Why is it so very important? Does God need us? I mean, right? He's in heaven. We're here on earth doing all the hard work. Yeah, right. (laughs) It's not like that at all. We're very blessed to do the very light amount of work that we can do for God. He's doing all the heavy lifting. But... uh, why is it so important? And it's what we can see and the reason for why this life 
and we ourselves are so important, is Psalm 2, the King. The Son of God took humanity upon Himself so that He could take our rulership away. Take our rulership. What were we ruled by? Sin and death. He dethroned sin and death and also the powerful, ungodly people who would rule us in this world and make us miserable if they could. And they're trying. He came to put the government upon His shoulders. His government. Not this one. Not the one in D.C. His government is on His shoulders. He came to take life away from the old fallen flesh and give His own life to each of us. And He would have to humiliate Himself in death to do it. And He did. And so as we're going through life, and one of those things that sparked this thought of my my mind today as I was looking at my YouTube page, and sure enough, the the trailer for The Chosen Season 3 is on YouTube. Yeah, and it just excited me to no end. Um, yeah, and it the last episode of Season 2 was Jesus walking out to give the Sermon on the Mount, and then the episode ended, and I was very disappointed in that, actually a little mad at them, but... The, tra- the trailer for season three shows him teaching the Sermon on the Mount. And it, it, from what I heard, it's word for word accurate from the scripture, which they've been doing. Uh, of course, they have to fill in some things. with, And it just looked magnificent. Now, you know, one of the things that can get you kind of led astray, you know, every good thing has its danger. Everything. If we misinterpret or, or misuse it. That actor on TV is doing a marvelous job playing Jesus. That's not what he looks like. And that's not him. All right? So we got that straight. But what he is portraying, which we bring into our hearts, right? We're 2,000 years away from him. It seems like a long, almost he becomes myth, mythical. It's so long ago. But the reality is that the Son of God in the flesh walked this earth. And that one knew us. Every one that the Father would give him, he knew. Do you know him? And do you know that you're known by him? Right now he's at the right hand of God. 2,000 years in the past, he's on the earth. Eight gazillion light years away, he is in heaven. And yet we have to, he has given us the ability through faith to make him a very meaningful reality in our lives now, today. That I'm walking with Him. That He is my constant companion. That I wear Him. That He's in me. And that if I obey Him, He'll make His home with me. Now. So do we see ourselves personally known by the King? And He is nothing less. Uh, Galatians 4.9, Paul writes, But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? Which the Galatians went back, the Galatians were convinced that they should be living under the rituals of the Mosaic Law. Where we fulfilled the law, Jesus fulfilled it for us, and where we are responsible to the ethics and morals of the law, but not to the rituals. The rituals have been removed. 
And so that's what he calls elemental things. They're worthless and weak. And as we'll see in Psalm 2, those who want to rebel against God are devising an empty thing. It's called a vain thing. It's empty, or as Paul would say here, worthless. You know, rituals don't bring us to God. Faith does. This is a real thing. It's not do some ritual and then God responds in kind. It's God is, I'm here. Come know me and follow me. So, known by God, don't go back to worthless things. Second Timothy 2.19, as Paul says to Timothy, Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. Right? We looked at this. When we pray in Jesus' name, we are bringing that name to the throne. We are, in essence, saying that we are in obedience to him. If you name his name, abstain from wickedness. In other words, obey. And so this moves us to the second psalm. Again, the second half of the introduction to the book of Psalms. Then we have the declaration of the king of all the earth and the warning to worship him with reverence, to rejoice with fear. And I love this phrase, to kiss the sun. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean to give him a, a big kiss on his lips. <laughs> In the ancient world, it wouldn't mean that. It would mean to bow the knee and to kiss his hand. And that image portrays to us a love and adoration which, from both of which flow obedience. So Marcus Dodds, uh, in his book, uh, which is called The Prayer That Teaches to Pray, he, he writes a book on the Lord's Prayer. And he draws a contrast between the conquering king, our conquering king, Jesus Christ, and the other human conquerors who have all through history conquered people and sometimes done good, sometimes done great evil. But even the, the human conquerors who have, you know, they, they've come into a place and maybe made it better. Maybe they've instilled a, a civilization, a greater technology, maybe more food, a longer lifespan. But they had to first beat them down. Right? And then they build, then they'll do, if they do good things, then they, they might do good things afterwards. But first they have to conquer by the sword. <clears throat> Did our King, Jesus Christ, conquer by the sword? No. How did he conquer? Here comes your King, says Zechariah in 9 9. On what? A big white steed with armor and a sword? No, he's on a donkey. <laughs> he's trotting along on a donkey with not a weapon in sight. <clears throat> Marcus Dodds, quote, The glory of our king is that he conquers for us for no other purpose than to raise us. That he seeks us not because the fame of our wealth and skill and power had excited his envy or ambition, but because the cry of the oppressed reached to heaven. And the sighing of the prisoner came before him, whose ear is delicate to catch the feeblest and most distant, and to understand the most confused desire of them that are in trouble, who say that there was none to govern us but rulers who led us through tyranny and destruction. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was none to come between us and those who had us at their will. 
and therefore his arm brought salvation. He saw that by his government alone could we be rescued and raised, and he determined through his own humiliation to exalt us. He became one of us, that he might be our king. He clothed himself in our dust, that we might wear his royal robe. He lay in our grave, that we might sit on his throne. He founded our joy in the deep bitterness of his own soul, our kingdom in his own obedience and subjection. Has he not claimed to reign over us? As he concludes the paragraph. And, you know, what Dodds brings out here, I just, I just adore this passage, that, uh, you know, he said, did he come because he saw a lot of good people that he could use? And, and other kings, when they conquer, why would they conquer a land? Because there's something there that they want. You know, in our day and age, it might be oil or natural gas or um, precious metals that go into all of our little cell phones and stuff like that. But back in that day, it could be people. You know, they just had good slavery that you could take or uh, good trading routes, something like that. So you saw an asset and you wanted it. Did God come to the earth because he saw an asset here? Oh, God, no. What did he hear? The cry of the oppressed, the sighing of the prisoner. The confused people who are in trouble, who say there's no one to govern us, that we're under tyranny. And is there no man? And it's interesting, as Dodd says this, when Jesus returns at the second coming, he finds no one to help him. Because he's the only one qualified to judge. There's none of us who are good. None who do good. All of us have gone astray. And so he brought salvation. He saw that only through him could we be set free. Only through his humiliation could he exalt us. And one of the lines here that I love, I think, the most is he lay in our grave. Right? That, the grave meaning death, final death, is for us. But he took it. He laid in our place. That tomb, he laid in in our stead, of which he walked out of. So, Dodds, after he says all of this, is, does he not have the claim to reign over us? By virtue of not just, well, he's God, but what has he done for us? Right? Does, not, does this not cause us to want to kiss the sun, to bow the knee and kiss the sun? All right, Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So we have the Lord, which is it's, uh, Jehovah or Yahweh there, and his anointed is where we get our word Messiah from. It's the Greek, uh, sorry, Hebrew Mashiach, which we anglicized into Messiah. It means anointed one or the Christ. <clears throat> and what do they say at their little council? They have a little meeting going on. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast their cords away from us. So these are chains and cords that might be wrapped around someone who's in prison. But are they in prison? Not at all. They think they are. 
They think because God rules and that His King will sit that they're in prison. In other words, why can't we rule? Right? There's people... <laughs> It makes me laugh. There's people running around in this world who think they have a hard time in life. They don't know the half of it. They need to go live somewhere in the third world. People in America who think that things are exceedingly hard, they think they're in prison, that they're tied up somehow. And they have no idea. What about at the final judgment? What kind of prison is that? An eternal one. But even us as believers, we can, we're not going there. We have a certain, an eternal life and, a, and an eternal destiny with God. But yet, we can look at our own lives and say, wow, this is really a prison. Is it? We don't, and, and God has a way of opening our eyes to that, by the way. And it's called divine discipline, which he does to every son and daughter because he loves us. And then we wakes us up and say, wow, things could be a lot worse. And so what do I got to do? I got to be joyful. I've got to have hope. I've got to have peace in him and him alone. Not my circumstances. Him and soldier on. Endure. You can do this. Because your God is sovereign. So there's a decreer. God's a decreer. There's nothing happens in your life that God has not decreed. Nothing. So you could you could sit here and think about the things that you hate the worst about your life, and say thank you, God, for <laughs> decreeing them. Now I know it's hard to it's easy to say thank you. It's a, it's another matter to actually be thankful. But uh, yeah, there's things in my life I'm not thankful for either. I mean, things that are in here, the sin nature of mine that I can't stand. But um, God has decreed it. He could have put you in another body. He could have made you at another time. You're not made by your parents. You're made by God. He's the one who imputes the soul. He's the one who breathes the neshama, as in Hebrew, the life into the body. So, that little tirade was not about Psalm 2. I just I, I do have this in my notes coming up, and I, I just wanted to say, and I'll probably, I want to repeat it again, that look, if we're going to be witnesses to the world, right, it's our unity and love, which is our joy amongst one another, despite our circumstances, which makes us the light of the world. Carrying around darkness in us because of our circumstances. This is hard. That is hard. He is hard. She is hard. This is this and that and the other thing. It's it's endless. And by the way, once you get all those things fixed, if you can, there's a whole line of people waiting to make you miserable. It's just it's non-ending. And it doesn't matter how old you are. I say, well, I haven't done this so far. I, I say this out loud because this is what I was thinking of myself. So, you know, I'm 56. I'm like, what? I got to start now? And God says, you bet. I don't care how old you are. You're an infant to me. Right? You have eternal life. 56 years is nothing. 80 years is 100 years is nothing to God. If you have to start now, and we all do at some level, and start. So, notice these kings. They're ridiculous. And God says so. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs and scoffs at them. And it's not that God is uncaring. 
This is a way of saying that what you are doing is amazing to me. This is, now notice where is God? He will speak to them in his anger. So he who sits where? In the heavens. Go back to verse 2. Where are the kings? On the earth. Who are the kings? Human, mortal. Who is the one, the Lord, who scoffs at them? Divine, deity. So we've got a human, a mortal on little planet earth who is counseling together with other mortals on little planet earth. That's a little meeting. And they're going to tear the ropes away. In other words, overthrow deity who is Lord of heaven. Yeah, and they got a real shot at that, right? But what's am- And this is why he scoffs at them. This is amazing. You honestly think that you can pull this off. But who of us can? Now look, for us as believers, we're not the unbelievers. So how does this apply to us? Because it must. This is the introduction to our psalms that we've got to pray and sing and study. Who are we to rebel against God? We've got to get ourselves humble. Very much so. In obedience and humble. And say, Lord, your will, not mine. And then rejoice in that. Lord, you have all things under control. I'm sure you scoff and laugh at me at times when I think I'm going to somehow sneak around your sovereignty and your law. I must not. So he says he'll speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. Notice how he's going to do this. There's two things. There's a chiasm there, which is a wonderful... Hebrewism, it's a way of setting things up. You have speak, you have anger and fury and speak and terrify. See that in verse 5? That's their parallelism. So speak in anger, terrify with fury. Those are saying the same thing, but it's repetitive so that it makes the case, it makes the point. God is going to speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. And notice what he says. What is the most, what's the terrifying thing? As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. That's it? That's the thing that terrifies them? And you bet. Because if the Lord sits on the throne, they can't. If the Lord sits on the throne, they have no hope of tearing these fetters and casting away these cords. They're in verse 3. They have no hope of it. And this one who is perfectly holy and righteous is the one who is going to judge them. And that is terrifying. It's terrifying to mankind to have Jesus Christ be the Messiah, be the Savior of the world. Because then there's no, you know, don't, don't when, uh, like the Egyptians had it, right? You died, you went into the underworld, and then if you were smart, you had your wits about you, you could get by this guy and this guy and this, you know, the guy with the human body and the bird head and the other dude, and then you could get through the underworld and make it to paradise. If you're just smart enough. But this is final. It's absolutely final. There is no other king. There is no other judgment. There is no other law. This is, this is it. This is what we're all under. We can't fight against this. So what's the thing to do? Totally give in. 
And there is the terrifying thing. So he says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. The decree. This is before the foundation of the world. That God has said, He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As we'll see, this is not about the virgin birth. This is about the installment of the king. It's a coronation. As for me, and I will surely, ask of me, sorry, and I will surely give thee the nations as thine inheritance. In other words, I will make you ruler of the whole world and the very ends of the earth as your possession. And you shall break them with a rod of iron. This is why they're terrified because he is going to judge and his judgment is final. You shall break them with a rod of iron and shatter them like earthenware. Now, last stanza. Therefore, O kings, show discernment Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling and kiss the Son. Do homage there is the Hebrew word that means to kiss. Do homage is fine. It's, kiss can be misleading. You see why they, the New American Standard has it as that because we might think that you know, we give them all a big hug and a kiss, a little wet one on the cheek or something. But uh, <clears throat> it means to do homage. It means to bow before him to kiss him is also adoration and thankfulness lest he become angry and you perish in the way do homage to the son lest he become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled meaning when is he coming back nobody knows <laughs> it could be hopefully it's never going to happen no. but right now his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. So, blessed at the front of the introduction, 1-1, one, one, blessed at the close. It's called an inclusio, so it, it's like bookends. And it's, it's their way. It's poetry. Poetry should be read as poetry. Marvelous. So, in this, this is the introduction to the whole of life. It's an introduction to the Psalms, but really to the whole of life. Uh, so, what I did want to do was go through it, because I want us to know these Psalms. I want us to know them well. They're short and sweet and packed with truth. And if we can remember them and know them, then you know our journey in prayer and worship of God uh, will have its ground. Now, as you, as we tie this to the Lord's Prayer, uh, which, you know, in my opinion, as you know, is the structure of prayer to the church, that we see your kingdom come, your will be done, is here in Psalm 2. You know, give us our bread. Uh, and that, by the way, the hour is plural. We find out as we read in the beginning of Acts that no one in the church, the poorest of the poor, went without food because everybody held all their possessions in common amongst the church. And so nobody went without. So we say our bread. We really do mean to say, all right, God, is there someone in my life who needs my help? And remember, bread means everything that we need. In that prayer, I would interpret it that way. Uh, and so we're sinners, forgive us our sins and our debts as we forgive others. 
and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. At the front of it, you know, our Father is in heaven, right? Heaven we have here in Psalm 2. And your will be done. That gets us to Psalm 1. That where that plant, where that tree planted by the water, we delight in the scripture and meditate on it day and night. So it's all here and there. And we, what we get to do is put them together with about a hundred prayers throughout the Bible, more. <laughs> and I just, and we'll see it if we probably won't have time today. But uh, the first stanza here, why the nations in an uproar and the people devising is a vain thing, is prayed in Acts chapter 4, word for word, by the group of infant Christians. As soon as Peter is released from his trial, they pray this. But they put it, they don't just say this, they put it in the midst of their own personal prayer. It's marvelous. And it shows us that we can take these things and instill them into our own prayer lives and with God's truth from his word, we can explore our speaking with him and also hearing back from him through his word. Now, uh, getting back to the first part here, just a, a few minutes more of this. I think we could just close it here, but i got a few minutes. Um, the rebels are here in the first stanza. And the rebels have always been and always will be. They're here now in planet Earth. Where they come from, nobody knows. I mean, we know where they come from. But you know, we, can't, we can't look at someone's birth and say, yeah, you're destined to be a rebel, All right? a rebel without a clue. Uh, you know, a good upbringing, a bad upbringing, a good neighborhood, a bad neighborhood, uh, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, certain DNA, lack of, it, there's no rhyme or reason to it. But what it is is choices. You know, it, <laughs> if uh, you have young people in your life, you know, children in your life, your nephews, grandchildren, by your own children, you fear for them in this. Right? You, and that's it keeps me. That's another thing that keeps me in prayer. Um, and you know, there are these people now. In reference to Psalm 2, the king is in Zion, so we have to focus on Israel. And it turns out, I showed you this the other day, that Israel is completely surrounded by enemies. I already circled them in red. All right, so you've got uh, Lebanon up top, which is is really uh, the Phoenicians at their their day. Uh, You have Aram. Uh, Let me get a... I like this little pen. So up here you have a ram. Those are the Syrians, Ammonites. They're all the ites, right? Moabites, Edomites. And uh, Egypt in the south. It's a big, you know, that's a desert that Moses and the Israelites were roaming around for 40 years. But Egypt to the south and the Philistines over in the east. Sorry, the west. And the Philistines really occupy this whole area. And Israel is just completely surrounded. All right, so God sent them in a legion to land with milk and honey. 
And there you have it. And, we, and that's what they said. They said to him, God, they said, if you remember in the book of Joshua, which we did years ago, that they said, well, you know, when Joshua split up the land, they finally said, all right, they drew lots, and they said, all right, Ephraim, this is your land. Issachar, this is your land. Judah, this is your land. And I think it was Ephraim who, you know, they go into their land and they're like, you know, Joshua already cleared out most of them, but not everybody. But the the people who were there after Joshua and his army were done were severely weakened, but they were still some of them there. But they're weakened. So God gave them every chance and he commanded them, throw the rest of them out of your land. If you don't, their false religion, their paganism, their... Their immorality is going to corrupt you. And if you don't, your daughters are going to marry their sons and they're going to corrupt you. So get rid of them. And the reason why I'm not getting rid of them for you is because I want you to make the decision. By faith, trust me, get rid of them. They didn't. Too hard. It really wouldn't have been all that hard either. But they did not. And so... Yeah, it's another aspect where in the Scripture things are repeated in such different ways because when Israel didn't get rid of these people, like in the Promised Land, they would not have, you know, the other nations, yeah, actually they would have gotten rid of all of them, but or at least defeated them all. But as we saw in Psalm 1, don't walk with the wicked. Don't take counsel with the wicked. And that's exactly what God said. If you don't get rid of them, that's what's going to happen. You're going to take counsel with the wicked. Uh, And so what is this picture, though, of? So we put you. I still have my thing here. Yeah. This is you. All right. And this is your life all around you. Oh, and you got all kinds of problems. As Colonel Thiem would always say, uh, Israel is a picture of the believer's soul. Uh, This is you. This is you. You've been. What's the promised land? That God has given you salvation. He's given you a plan. You have eternal life. You have life with Him. He indwells you. You have asset after asset, elected, predestined. It's all yours. Spiritual gift, body of Christ. It's all yours. Word of God. And you have all this stuff around you. And they, you know, they change. Some Ammon goes away and they get replaced by someone else or something else. You get, you get a health scare. You get a monetary scare. You get a, you know, it's maybe a real one, a real problem that really cuts you down. But then the problem, no problems last forever. I shouldn't say that. Most problems don't last forever. But they're always going to be there. Now, we don't get rid of them like Israel was to by war. We conquer our problems by the truth, by our faith in the truth. And this takes work. What I mean by that is it takes consistent study, consistent prayer. You, and and getting back to, not just you, me, all of us. Uh, Wait a minute, what am I doing? I don't know how to work my own computer here. There, look. 
You know you're known by God, right? So live this way. God is with you every day. If, and this is, is something about you want to pursue in your study of God's Word, not to just get knowledge, but knowledge of Him, to know Him, to live with Him, to walk with Him. The same with your prayer life. It's not just about getting things or solving problems. It is that as well. But it's also seeking God and finding God and walking with God and communion with God in reality on a day-by-day basis where it's impossible for you to forget or to neglect the fact that God is with you. Like Jesus was here on earth, we live as if he's right here with us. But by faith we know he's in us. He's even closer, really. Remember, Jesus said, it is to your advantage that I go away. The disciples didn't want him to go away. Of course they didn't. I wouldn't want him either to go away. But it is to your advantage, he said, because if I go away, then I can send you the Holy Spirit. And now that we have the Holy Spirit, we have something greater than his physical presence. Or else he wouldn't have said that. And so you and I must grab hold of a life, a Christian life, through the Scripture, through prayer, through application of it all, in that we are like this tree planted by the water. The water, the water we could even see is, is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is always our, in our very real presence. Real. I mean, this real God-man seated at the right hand of God knows you intimately, knows me intimately, and is very concerned for us. He's praying for us too. And that's what I want to, through these psalms, that's what I want us to grab hold of. The very real presence of our King. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you that you have uh, so graced us out and blessed us with uh, your word. And we ask, Father, that you would continue to challenge us and guide us in prayer and to um, make it so that your reality and your very real presence would be one that we all have. We take time, Father. It takes to certainly continued study and prayer and, and, and walking with you and living with you. We pray, Father, that to each of us you would show us those open doors by which we would come through and see you in a deeper and a more personal way. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Nice. Why?